This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. Thank you for that very nice introduction. Can I see a show of hands um, of people who have not been here before? Welcome, welcome. And can I see a show of hands of people who are not that familiar with the three jewels of Buddhism? Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Okay. Okay, well, that will help um, guide me a little bit in, in what I pause to explain. But tonight's topic is climate change. And in the big picture, human beings are taking fossil carbon laid down over millennia um, out of the earth and putting it into the atmosphere very, very quickly, mu- uh, at a much, much faster pace than it took to deposit it in the first place. So the carbon is mostly in the form of carbon dioxide, which is a gas that traps heat um, in our atmosphere, and it causes warming, global warming. Global warming, in turn, causes climate change um, all over the planet, and particularly uh, at its poles. And perhaps most threateningly, um, even if we stopped emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere today, it would take hundreds of years for the warming to slow and or reverse because of the way carbon dioxide in the atmosphere interacts with all the reservoirs, the other reservoirs um, of the Earth. So the state of the climate is uh, the authoritative annual summary of the global climate that's published as a supplement to the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society, probably not a rag that everybody here reads. Um, But this report, which is compiled by NOAA's Center for Weather and Climate at the National Centers for Environmental Information, it's based on the contributions of over 450 scientists from around the world, And it just happened to come out last week for um, the past year. So it summarizes the way things were in 2015, including the following highlights. Greenhouse gases were the highest on record. Major greenhouse gas concentrations, including carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide, rose to new record high values during 2015. The 2015 average global CO2 concentration was 399.4 parts per million, and that represented an increase of 2.2 parts per million compared with 2014. Um, And to put that in perspective, uh, our best understanding of pre-industrial levels of CO2 in the atmosphere are about 262 parts per million. Global surface temperature was also the highest on record. It was aided by the strong El Nino that we had. The annual global surface temperature was 0.76 to 0.83 degrees Fahrenheit above 
1981 to 2010 average, surpassing the previous record set in 2014. So nine of the 10 warmest years in modern history have occurred since 2000. Sea surface temperature was the highest on record. The globally averaged sea surface temperature was 0.59 to 0.70 degrees above average, breaking the previous mark set in 2014. And global upper ocean heat content was also the highest on record. Upper ocean heat content exceeded the record in 2014. So you're getting a sense that you know things are rolling along. Um, global sea level rose to a new record high in 2015. It measured about 2.75 inches higher than observed in 1993 when satellite record keeping for global sea level began. Uh, sea level rise, that is. Tropical cy cyclones were well above average overall. There were 101 tropical cyclones total across all ocean basins in 2015, well above the 1981 to 2010 average of 82 storms. The eastern and central Pacific had 26 named storms, the most since 1992. And the North Atlantic had fewer storms than most years during the last two decades. So there's a surprise. Um, the Arctic continued to warm, and sea ice extent remained low. The Arctic land surface temperature in 2015 was 2.2 degrees above the 1981 to 2010 average tying 2007 and 2011 as the highest on record. The maximum Arctic sea ice extent reached in February of 2015 was the smallest in the 37-year satellite record, while the minimum sea ice extent that September was the fourth lowest on record. So I'm going to change gears and stop my rattling off of all these records um, and just give a tangent on a, on a little personal history. Um, I started my work career in 80, 1981 at the Ecosystem Center in Woods Hole, which is a nonprofit research center started by George Woodwell, who at that point had already attained renown for his research on how gamma radiation affects um, animals and forest ecosystems. And so at that age, I was introduced to the global carbon cycle um, by studying a computer program which was written in Fortran um, by a scientist from Oak Ridge National Laboratory, and that was one of the early global carbon cycle models. So after a couple of years, I wanted to s choose a discipline within ecology for a graduate degree, and I learned about remote sensing. And that really appealed to me. Um, a, a new colleague had given a talk on how tropical deforestation could be monitored um, or mapped with satellite imagery, and I thought this seemed like a perfect thing to study because you could see large extents and really know what was happening over, um, over large areas. So I've been studying satellite Im imagery ever since, um, continuing after my master's degree on deforestation in Malaysia, and working at NASA, where all the science we do there has to, has to be linked to the Earth-observing satellites that NASA launches and, um, and operates. Um, 
So I've known for almost 35 years about global warming, but it's really only in the last 10 or 12 years that I, I confess it's regularly disturbed my own consciousness with, with great urgency. I think before that, I, um, I was partially blinded by a sort of a scientific objective view, which is sort of sets the actions of an individual um, apart from the system that he or she is studying. Um, so, but in the, in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, um, it's really felt like a personally urgent matter and something I think about a lot. So, so far, this doesn't sound much like a Dharma talk, does it? <laughs> so, I'm, from now on, I'm going to try to structure the talk line, along the lines of the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So, th- for those who are not very familiar with those concepts, um, the Buddha is a source of inspiration for, for, for us. He was a figure who lived 2,600 years ago and reached enlightenment by his own efforts. Um, And his teachings after he reached enlightenment, uh, which he conveyed orally to many people throughout his uh, region in India and Nepal, uh, they were written down 300 years after his death. And um, those, those writings continue to inspire us today. And the Dharma are his teachings. So when a person sits up here and talks, we call it a Dharma talk. And then lastly, the Sangha, uh, the group of people practicing. So at the time that the historical Buddha lived, there were probably no more than 20 million people living on earth. When he was growing up as a prince, he, has, he had a palace for each of the three seasons that comprised the climate of his region in northern India or Nepal. So probably global climate was changing back then due to forcing functions like volcanic eruptions and solar fluctuations and complex feedbacks. But it was probably changing at far, far too slow a rate for several generations to really notice it, Um, not really visible to people. Um, So the Buddha did not encounter conditions of climate change and, and made no direct references or comments about it. But 2,600 years later, there are about 7.5 billion people on earth. And a lot of those uh, billions have access to a technology or technologies far beyond what people had at the Buddha's time. As Alan, Alan Watts put it, the earth is peopling. One estimate states that a European standard of living would be supportable by an earth with a global human population of about 2 billion a number that was surpassed in the 1950s. So it's by virtue of the really great success of our species, its ability to create conditions conducive to a large increase in population, 
that has also led to a capacity to destroy itself. So although neither climate change nor overpopulation would be acknowledged in the suttas, there are ways of thinking about global warming that fit well within the Buddha's teachings or the Dharma. Let me refer to the first two of what are called the three marks of existence. These two characteristics are dukkha, usually translated as suffering or unsatisfactoriness, and anicca, or impermanence. So first, there's no doubt that much suffering is conditioned by rapid climate change. In recent years, there have been many symptoms of global warming that are in the news or even touch our community directly. Heat waves kill thousands of people. This past year, there's some amazing heat waves in India that killed many, many people. Floods occur with greater frequency and intensity over larger areas. Coral reefs and marine life are affected by ocean heat and acidification. Severe droughts are much deeper and more prolonged. The current drought in California is about five years old now. It's very severe and causing consequences for farmers, livestock, and food availability for the whole nation. And of the seven years since 1960 that have seen more than 8 million acres burned by wildfire in the U.S., all were within the last 10 years. 2005, 2006, 2007, 2011, 12, and last year. Over 10 million acres burned last year, the largest of any in the 55 years that records have been kept. The Soberanus fire that's currently burning in the Big Sur area, as of today, almost 70,000 acres, is happening quite close to us, and some of you may be personally affected or know someone who is by that fire. So those are some of the circumstances that uh, are are causing suffering and cause suffering for people and other sentient beings the suffering of grief over lost loved ones, lost homes, even lost homelands, not to mention the loss of beloved places. There is suffering because of fear and anxiety about what is going to happen in the future. And then sustainability, which is a concept that has become very popular on something to strive for, it can create dukkha if sustainability efforts are not achieved or they're unsuccessful. So those are sort of the three kinds of dukkha that the Buddha pointed to. Um, Wishing for the unpleasant circumstances to go away. Uh, Wishing for the pleasant circumstances to stick around and um, being deluded about what the circumstances actually are. So these kinds of dukkha are all natural, and a realistic view includes them. 
a troubling, a troubling characteristic of the stuka, of course, in the case of climate change, is the very, very large number of people and other sentient beings that it affects. Uh, the conditioning of global warming ripples out and reverberates in exceedingly complex ways. So interestingly, one of the manifestations of a deluded view is to deny or ignore that this is happening, perhaps because of an aversion to the suffering, or perhaps because of greed for things that are made possible by fossil fuel economies, or a mixture of both. So that's dukkha, the dukkha of global climate change. Then there's um, the second characteristic, anicca or impermanence. Certainly applies to climate change. All conditioned things are impermanent according to the Dharma. Species of beings are impermanent. With rapid climate change, in addition to all of the other stresses human beings put on the environment, we are in the midst of what has been called the sixth extinction, a loss of such a large number of species in a short time that it rivals other major destructive events far back in the Earth's history, including the end of the Ordovician, the late Devonian, the end of the Permian, the late Triassic, and the most famous of all, the end of the Cretaceous. It could be that this sixth and possibly largest extinction is commonplace in the universe. There are many worlds beyond Earth, um, as NASA's Kepler mission has now shown. They may be at a huge diversity of global states, these other worlds. Our living ecosystems may be collapsing just as another is just at the beginning of a cycle replete with life. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, contains at least as many plan planets as it does stars. The Kepler team has estimated that there are between 100 and 400 billion exoplanets. Of course, it's completely speculative as to whether any of these planets have life on them. But there, if there are such other worlds, the impermanence of condition phenomena on them applies equally well. So this might sound like a bleak view, but what I have understood from years of study is that the quantification of the world is fraught with problems. Try as we might with sensors of increasing sophistication and higher and higher resolution, our measurement of the world is always somewhat inaccurate. For this reason, though I believe the basic de description of the global carbon cycle is correct and getting more accurate as we work on it, we don't or can't understand all the implications of human forcing, of the human forcing function. That's what we always call it, the forcing function. So though we can predict the general outlines of what will happen to air and ocean temperature, precipitation, ocean acidification, and sea level rise, we can't be precise, particularly about the interactions of those changes with human reactions and those of other sentient beings. We can't know exactly what our actions will lead to in the future. 
So how do we practice with that? How do we take right action? So I'll turn to right action, which is one of the factors in what the Buddha taught as the eightfold path toward the end of suffering. So um, this is a description from the Anguttara Nikaya, um, a lay person's skillfulness, as opposed to a monastic skillfulness, which is a little different. (laughs) So a certain person, abandoning the taking of life, abstains from the taking of life. She dwells with her rod laid down, her knife laid down, scrupulous, merciful, compassionate for the welfare of all living beings. Abandoning the taking of what is not given, she abstains from taking what is not given. She does not take, in the manner of a thief, things in a village or a wilderness that belong to others and have not been given by them. So by being a part of society in a so-called first world country, we are all indirectly taking life and stealing from the next generation by virtue of the indirect effects of our actions. Even monastics, at least in the West, also partially participate in this Indra's net, since monasteries and retreat centers depend on dana from householders who are enmeshed in the fossil fuel economy. An illuminating narrative about one person's attempt to extricate himself and his family's participation in indirect harm is a book called No Impact Man by Colin Bevan, which I read a number of years ago and um, found very interesting. So um, I recommend the book as, as uh, uh, a narrative about how just how difficult it is in our current culture to extricate oneself. Um, and Colin Bevan continues to be um, working on the problem of climate change. So I feel that working mentally with the reality and the prospects of global warming bears some relationship with the three heavenly messengers, sickness, old age, and death. Contemplation on one's own vulnerability to sickness and old age and one's certain death can be used as a powerful motivator for awakening. Perhaps contemplation on the biosphere's vulnerability to human-caused climate change is another motivator to wake us up. Another aspect of the Eightfold Path is right intention. Does anyone really actually intend to cause global warming? I don't think so. I doubt any person has the intention to cause that. It is possible to cultivate the intention or to undertake undertake the training to reduce one's carbon footprint using multiple methods. This seems like a uh, a virtuous individual response to global warming. So to respond in this way, individuals may take time to understand their impact on the planet and then take practical actions to live more sustainably One action is to buy carbon offsets to mitigate one's own greenhouse gas emissions from transportation, electricity use, and other sources. Um, This purchase pays for activities elsewhere like reforestation, recycling, or investments in renewables or more efficient energy production. 
One complaint about offsets is they don't solve the entire problem of, for example, aviation-caused greenhouse gases. One climate researcher said, buying offsets is a nice idea, just like giving to a soup kitchen is a nice idea, but it doesn't end world hunger. (laughs) I'd say this is clearly a delusion, that one action needs to provide a total answer that's clearly impossible. Practicing renunciation can be a wholesome response as well. Again, not providing a complete solution. Limiting consumption, making do with less, reducing airline trips, all of these can be practiced with the intention to reduce harm. And when you think about it, sitting and walking and standing in meditation is a very low carbon footprint activity. (laughs) So where does the fuel come from for individual action to reduce indirect harm? It might come from a rational analysis of our global circumstances obtained after much education from all sorts of scientific, psychological, and sociological studies. This is often the way arguments for individual action are framed, that given human use of fossil fuel has all these harmful effects, It's only reasonable that each person would try to do something about it. Some scientists, in my experience, are indeed motivated by that kind of rationality, which we might call an objective view. Yet scientists often have a large carbon footprint because of the amount of air travel that they do. So I've gradually come to an additional perspective informed by what in Buddhism is called the four Brahma-viharas or divine abodes. Also translated as the sublime attitudes, these four are kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. Training in these four attitudes can lead to a more powerful ability to act to reduce harm. Kindness towards self and towards others, known and unknown to you, is a way to quench selfishness. Cultivating compassion will create the desire to alleviate suffering whenever possible. Practicing empathetic joy multiplies one's own occasions for joy by a large number. So in that regard, I'd like to read you an excerpt from a book called The Buddha at the Apocalypse by Kurt Spellmeyer. Several years ago, a story ran on NPR calling Saving the World in Ethiopia, One Child at a Time. The story involved a woman named Jennifer. Her last name was never disclosed. As the research coordinator for a medical nonprofit, she was responsible for overseeing a team of student volunteers in Ethiopia. Their particular concern was trachoma, a disease that causes certain blindness unless the victim receives early treatment. Ethiopia sits at the bottom of the list of the poorest countries on earth with a population that has needed food aid for eight out of the last ten years. Aside from the steady pulse of the reporter's voice, one of the first sounds the microphone picked up was the crying of village children. The eye exam given to those children that day required Jennifer to to turn back each child's lid before swabbing the moist interior, an unpleasant procedure even with adults. 
The report concluded at the long day's end with Jennifer in her tiny room sorting through test tubes on the floor. Who wouldn't be inspired by this account? Here was a young American whose sacrifice will leave the world a better place. A woman dedicated, as the title said, to saving the world one child at a time. And the children there clearly needed to be saved, poor, dirty, ill, and without schooling, like millions of other Ethiopians. A story like this makes a powerful case for the world-changing attitude of the West. But one moment in the story didn't fit. The most important moment in the whole account, and the one most easily overlooked, was when Jennifer finally had her say. In a a few quiet moments... She seemed to contradict everything the story was written to suggest. Quote, I don't think of myself as saving the world. I think of myself as connecting with the world as it is right now. It's impossible to know how many listeners noticed this moment of dissonance. Connecting with the world and saving it aren't the same at all. Connecting implies a different way of interacting with the reality, but it's one our culture doesn't really understand. To Western ears, it sounds rather trivial or vague, but maybe there's something more to it than that. So as I read this story, I see a description of someone who's acting out of loving kindness and compassion. She probably had a lot of empathetic joy as well as she observes children who have been treated and then have the gift of sight. And finally, the fourth Brahma Vihara, arriving at equanimity, can help maintain the energy that one needs for continuing skillful action in the face of life and suffering. So let me read you what Bhikkhu Bodhi says about equanimity. Equanimity in Pali, which is upeka, is, quote, not an indifference in the sense of unconcern for others. As a spiritual value, upeka means stability in the face of the fluctuations of worldly fortune. It's an evenness of mind, unshakable freedom of mind, a state of inner equipoise that cannot be upset by gain and loss, honor and dishonor, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. Upeka is freedom from all points of self-reference. It is indifference only to the demands of the ego self with its craving for pleasure and position, not to the well-being of one's fellow human beings. True equanimity is the pinnacle of the four social attitudes that the Buddhist text called the divine abodes, boundless loving kindness, compassion, altruistic joy, and equanimity. The last does not override and negate the preceding three, but perfects and consummates them. I I just think that's a very beautiful expression. An equanimous view knows oneself as a single individual with limited ability to save the world from global warming and so does not create additional suffering with useless guilt. An equanimous view would also understand that changes to our behavior with respect to using the atmosphere and oceans as a dumping ground for greenhouse gas pollutants 
must be done in large numbers. And that brings me to the third of the, th- of the three jewels, Sangha. Shaila has taught us, and I quote, the Pali term Sangha literally means gathering or community. Historically, the term Sangha has been used to refer to the ordained community of monks and nuns. Contemporary Western Buddhists often use the term Sangha to refer to their local meditation groups, people at a retreat center, or gatherings of friends who practice together. References in the suttas to the fourfold Sangha that is composed of male monastics, female monastics, male lay followers, and female lay followers support the validity of using the term Sangha to refer to practitioners whether or not they wear monastic robe robes. So efforts towards reducing the harm of climate, global climate change must also be done in community. As a problem of civilization, it must be addressed by civilization. There are many, many opportunities to join communities, Buddhist and non-Buddhist, to work towards reducing our reliance on fossil fuels and to connect with the way the world is right now. So we can't know exactly what our actions will lead to in the future. All we can do is to continue to cultivate wisdom, compassion, and skillful action. So I'd like to end tonight's talk with the last words of the Buddha from the Digga Nikaya. Behold now, monks, I exhort you. All compounded things are subject to vanish. Strive with earnestness. So I'd like to um, end by offering some suggestions of sources of information and or sources of community on acting skillfully in the face of climate change, as well as open it up for any questions that people might have or comments. So um, a list, a short list um, for information includes some some very simple URLs for very useful websites. One is NASA's climate information, climate, nasa.gov sometimes when I talk to people um, they say I didn't know NASA was involved in climate research but actually we fund quite a bit of climate research because our mandate is to look at planets and earth as a planet we're looking at earth as a planet and climate is a major factor (laughs) in that investigation and so that website has all sorts of up-to-date information on the state of the climate. Um, there's also the Yale Climate Connections website that includes interesting uh, psychological and sociopolitical information about climate as well as the, the physical realities. There's Al Gore's Climate Reality Project, which has information and um, the opportunity to get involved in a global community. 
There is the Citizens Climate Lobby, um, which is a really, really great organization that is working to put a tax on carbon in this country and elsewhere in the world. Um, it's a very large community at this point, and I've participated in our local meetings, and um, I, I like it not only for its, um, its goals, but its, its methods are very consistent with what we practice here, which is respect and, and um, compassionate listening to other people. So, um, and then there's some Buddhist organizations, the Buddhist Climate Action Network, globalbcan.org, and One Earth Sangha. Uh, the the uh, One Earth Sangha organized a Buddhist declaration on climate change, which was signed in 2009, and there are still efforts by that group. So that's kind of a short list, um, and now I'd like to, to open it up for any comments and suggestions. Yeah, I, um, I was actually thinking about that. I had that impression as well, and then I looked at the, that, that, that the U.S. had a tremendous amount of climate change denialism and that the politics here were unique. But actually, they're not unique. There's kind of a continuum. We are at one end of the continuum, granted. <laughs> we have more denialism. But, but if you look at the countries of the world, there's sort of a, um, there's a gradient. And um, so it, it may go kind of hand in hand with the fact that we, we do produce a lot of the emissions and therefore we may, we may have this, uh, this aversion to, to actually meeting that head on, much in the same way as when we have um, unskillful behavior ourselves individually, it may be hard for us to see it and other people can see it clearly, but we have trouble seeing it. And, um, Sometimes I find it very helpful to think of the way politics and um, populations working as kind of similar to way to the way individuals psychologically work. That we have we have our prefrontal cortex, which is not quite up to the task of all the things we think we want to do, <laughs> because we have this big brain behind it and millennia uh, millennia of evolution that cause us to do all sorts of other things that we don't think we're even doing. <laughs> so I, I see that mirrored in the behavior of governments and peoples and cultures. Um, so I see um, all sorts of activities on the part of various groups as ways to try to change that, much in the way we might try to change our own behavior, behavior with Willpower. I thought about karma um, quite a bit, and then there's so so I was struggling with the concept of 
sort of direct harm and indirect harm. That it's, it's easier for us to understand how to be harmless as far as direct actions or directly what's right in front of us than it is indirect actions. And how that all plays into concepts of karma, I decided I wasn't qualified. (laughs) I thought karma was also action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did, and I did address the intention aspect, but then there's this sort of disconnect between our good intentions of not wanting to cause global climate change and actually what happens in our economy and in our society. So So with that, we're actually at 9.03, so I'll bring this to a close, and I really appreciate your attention and, and questions and comments. Thank you.